So now the arc of that has changed, right? So a lot of these referral patterns that you're talking about have actually been disaggregating over some time, right? So before you had a primary care doctor and that primary care doctor would then send you to a specialist and that specialist would then say, hey, we need to do this to you, that to you. And then they have a hospital that they work with and that's where the procedure would be done. And for the most part, that's still holding. But what's happening now is that, you know, for example, you mentioned Walgreens and CVS was kind of the, one of the first movers in the pharmacy space with Minute Clinic in this area. But then Walgreens with Village MD and the recent buyout of Summit demonstrates that they're realizing that, oh, we can become effectively the gate to healthcare for most primary care considerations. They've got Village MD, they've got Summit, they are a pharmacy by definition, they control a lot of the drug spend. They also sell a bunch of other things in the pharmacy. So it works. I would imagine their economic mm-hmm. model works really nicely if you can actually take care of patients, get their meds there and get anything else there that they need. And then, you know, they're also, I think, exploring Medicare Advantage plans over time. And we're seeing this actually grow into the grocery chain. Like Kroger is actually very forward leaning on this, you know, so now you can go to Kroger at some point in the near future and get your primary care visit and your meds and your bananas on the way out. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. We're delighted to have Fahad Rahman here with us today. Uh, Fahad has spent more than 15 years as a healthcare innovator, working to improve care delivery and outcomes. From the foundation of two master's degree, one in finance and one in neuroscience, and immediately prior to founding his current company, he was a leader in Geisinger Health Systems Healthcare Innovation Arm, where he helped restructure care delivery for other large health systems. Fahad is currently the co-founder and CEO of Lumi Health, where they work to improve selection, dosage, and titration of complex medication therapy, such as in heart failure patients. Fahad is joining us today from his home in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you for the kind introduction. I'm, I'm super excited to be here today. Great, great, great. So we'll jump into it. I like to start with what I call kind of define the word warm-up. So I will give you a couple of words and ask you in, in your terms to kind of define them or what do they mean to you. So the first one should be obvious. Message. <laughs> Sentiment. Sentiment. That was very concise. Okay, second one. Uh, Value-based care. Doing things better repeatedly. And last one, just for you, uh, retailization. Thinking about the patient. Got it. Got it. Great. Very interesting answers. Message sentiment. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you said sentiment? Sure. You know, one of the things that I think about when it comes to messaging is that there's different parts of us that a message hits. But in my experience, that sort of sentiment or feeling or that emotional connection typically drives a lot of engagement. And I think a lot of the data out there, I'm not a message expert like you, but I think a lot of the data shows that there's um, very interesting parts of the human psyche and being and what we value that's uh, that's important. And things, we are sentimental creatures, you know? I think it's one of the reasons why Happy Meals continue to sell at McDonald's is we think about when we were younger and how we loved the Happy Meal and the toy and we're customers for life at McDonald's because of that sentiment. So... McDonald's is going to sell us on on what they have. We already know that it's bad for us, but we still buy it anyways. That's a that's a great that's a great point, and it's definitely true that messages which have an emotional connection are are stronger, right? Um, are stronger and tend to carry the day um, from that standpoint. So the Happy Meal example is an interesting one. <laughs> Value-based care. So when you're talking about kind of that being patient-centric or patient-focused, 
Can you provide a little bit more color? Yeah, to that? It, it's interesting. You know, I came into healthcare from not being a healthcare insider, right? So I used to do management consulting, and uh, you know, as this episode progresses, maybe I'll be able to share a little bit about my story and my family story with healthcare. But we're probably the only industry that has a name for trying to do things better. Other industries just do things better, right? Like we don't say UPS is like exceptional supply chain optimization, right? I mean, they just deliver stuff, we get the outcome, so on and so forth. So I think in healthcare, we actually have, if we have something called value-based healthcare, we also have something that's non-value-based healthcare, which is basically the status quo, which is kind of insane, right? And so at the core of value-based care is really about repeatability, demonstrability of outcomes and consistency in some manner that actually drives down costs while improving outcomes and improving experience. And you know, there's so many different imperatives that it has to meet. So it really is about doing things better consistently. There is a patient focus, but a lot of value-based care actually needs to be oriented around providers too. Just throwing a bunch of stuff at doctors and, and, and nurses and pharmacists is leading to insane burnout problem, right? So we can't, there's multiple stakeholders, but it's really just about doing, in my feeling, doing things better consistently, repeatably, measurably, to help everybody over the long term. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of medicine, I mean, there's this whole concept, right, of practice of medicine, being that ability to, to modify and choose and make these kind of decisions, which may or may not kind of conform with what we think of as best practice, which are kind of guidelines, right? But guidelines can only follow, societal clinical guidelines can only provide a direction and not kind of an absolute endpoint. And so how do you how do you find that middle ground? How do you drive value-based care to kind of get the best outcomes in such a myriad group of patients when even though you have these guidelines, right, and best practices, they don't always seep through to physicians. And then there's so much practice of medicine kind of judgment that happens. Yeah, that's it, a great question. And I'll try to be concise because this could take up your entire podcast and probably even more. But I think one of the things that, it, it, that we have to think about is what's the current architecture of healthcare, right? The current architecture of healthcare mm-hmm. is generally, so the preponderance of dollars are in getting paid on utilization, doing things to people, uh, you know, giving things to people. And that gives you money, right, in the form of codes and reimbursement. Actually, our entire technical architecture is built around that. Electronic medical record systems are not actually electronic medical record systems. They're billing and documentation platforms for reimbursement that, by the way, also have a way to document things for billing and coding not necessarily for care delivery, right? So the entire system is architected a specific way. When we think about value-based care, the lines of sight are actually really, really challenging because you're talking about maybe preventing something or creating or reducing costs or creating clinical value that by definition may be really, really difficult to measure. What is the cost of preventing somebody's diabetes or delaying the onset of diabetes by five or 10 years? There's no mathematical formula for that. There's actually, you can't even build a reimbursement model around that today. So, you know, where we're starting at in value-based care is the reduction of errors part of the equation, right? A lot of that has to do with what you talked about. Of We know that there are guidelines, there's non-compliance with guidelines. We can't say the guidelines are the be-all, end-all, but they're sort of the driving manual of the healthcare world, right? They won't tell you how to drive a car better, but they at least tell you which side of the road to drive on and what not to do, Right. And we're still not following that at scale, right? We have a lot of deviation from guidelines. This is one of the things that Lumi does around medication therapy specifically. So how do we get folks to at least drive on the same side of the road and improve consistency on that? But then over time, how do we actually change the way we're delivering care to create a longer arc of how we think about patients and how we think about outcomes? You know, if you think, if you've been inside an EMR these days, there's a billion quality measures, right? I mean, physicians and their staffs and hospitals are constantly like, I call this problem the tyranny of the quality measures, right? There's quality measures that are introduced, but never really removed, right? So we started off with maybe dozens of them. Now we have hundreds of them. And if this problem is never curtailed, we may end up with thousands of them, right? And so there's so much documentation, and everything that's happening. But at scale, what we're actually finding uh, is that you can be amazing at quality measures, 
but still not really demonstrably move a population's outcomes in any meaningful way. So there's you know, some more research that needs to be done around specific type of quality measures and what the efficacy of those is. And I think we're still in the learning process right now. And there's going to take a lot of time to figure out, uh, you know, even the leading health systems in this space are, are, are learning and evolving, right? So yeah, that's sort of where we are. I think that this is a big journey for, for healthcare in this country. And and we are seeing different folks doing different things. And hopefully it all kind of comes together in, different, in, in meaningful ways. Yeah, I think that is a great way to characterize it, right? We're, we're not, we're trying to get everyone to drive on the same side of the road, like step one, and that these quality measures, maybe, maybe they have a time frame on them. Maybe it's good to kind of elevate for a period of time, but to continue to grow those out to drive care to, into, to have so many different quality measures perhaps dilutes the value um, of the newer ones and being able to kind of learn from that and incorporate it into practice and move ahead. Yeah, so you can't focus on all of them at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and here's the thing, right? It's it's like anything in in you know anything you deal with a metric, a quality measure, is just a performance metric, right? And so corporate America has already gone through this. I, I used to work in this space, right? The the scorecard, the balanced scorecard, the all these different approaches. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is like at least ten to fifteen years behind, right? So one of the things that we should first do is learn from these other industries like you know i don't think ge or procter and gamble or some of these other you know ups take your pick of high performing companies that have been for around for a long time that do complicated things there are methodologies out there right why are we not why are we only thinking about the methodology from an insider perspective we should think about kpi metric performances from from other industries and extrapolate what we can because there's a rationalization that's going to need to happen at some time. And in Geisinger, this is what we would do. We would create composite quality measures. So instead of tracking seven things, you t- target one thing, and those that one thing flows down to these multiple other measures. It helped to down-rationalize the number of things that somebody would need to manage. And that's, I think, if you talk to any physician, they're just like, yeah, that we found that to be very, very successful with the folks that I worked at over there that did that type of work because it reduced down the documentation and tracking imperative and doctors can then get back to doing what they do best, which is taking care of patients and thinking through deeply clinical problems, you know, on a one-to-one basis to improve outcomes. But there's, there's a push and pull. There's only a limited amount of time and resources. So you can spend that time chasing a quality measure. You can actually spend that time improving care. And sometimes those things are not necessarily as neatly aligned as we'd like to think. I think, I think there are a couple of interesting points you made in there. Uh, One is this idea of, uh, simplifying what's complex, right? Taking multiple measures and distilling it into kind of one that then is kind of like the keystone, if you will, that drives the rest. That makes it that makes a tremendous amount of sense in kind of approaching these things. And when when you look at you know hospitals are the healthcare systems, let's say broadly. Um, are looking at quality measures, they're looking at clinical guidelines, they're managing innovation, they're managing, you know, patients, profit margins, providers, right? More and more, they healthcare systems, at least in the United States and IDNs, have been purchasing up kind of additional entities and rolling them up into to, in this kind of latest iteration, the last year or so, to kind of build out this care continuum for patients and value-based care is happening in certain places, right? Like ACOs, it's happening in certain places where healthcare systems and IDNs are contracting with payers for a piece of their business to accept certain amounts of risk. How, when you, when you think about it from a startup, right? From like a med tech startup standpoint, what should medtech startups be thinking about when the bulk of the market is still fee-for-service? How can they kind of not miss the boat on where it's going relative to value-based? I, I think that's a spectacular question because we are in a transitory period, right? So one of the things that we learned, and you know, we have learnings even before launching Lumi from not only from Geisinger, but one of our advisors comes from Oxner Health System, which is another IDN based in, in New Orleans, you know, uh, and very similar along the clinic model of Mayo and Intermountain, Kaiser, very, you know, these, these entities kind of operate very similarly. And there's some data that shows that for an IDN or a health system to start thinking in value-based care 
language, right? In in terms of how they think about mm-hmm. revenue and how they think about outcomes and penalties and savings. All of their money doesn't have to be in value-based care, right? Around 30% of 30% of their revenue is around in value-based care. And I believe this comes from a McKinsey study. They think of all of their money as coming from the same type of source. So there's a shift that happens at that 30% inflection point. And that's particularly important because in answering your question, the vast preponderance of dollars still in healthcare broadly are you know, fee-for-service or semi-fee-for-service economics, right? Even mm-hmm. a lot of value, what we would call value-based care plans are really fee-for-service underlying economics with the value-based care type of wrapper on it. And that's okay because different organizations, different geographies are at different levels of, of maturation. But for startups, what they need to think about is who are they targeting? What are they targeting with? What is their thing, right? Especially, you know, a lot of this applies to services, right? If you're selling pure tech, you're typically on a technology type of economic model. And if you were in a value-based care paradigm, you would be talking about how you improve clinical outcomes or quality improvement or cost reduction, right? But on the service side, it gets a little tricky because then you have to really think about, okay, and we're a tech-enabled service company. We do polypharmacy management. We sit, you know, we, we, we're building in the current you know, environment, but we're planning for the future. So, the, so what I say is we're, we're living in reality, but we're planning for what's coming next. And so that means being transitory yourself, you know, working within, if you're, the, the guidance I would have is if your core customers are mostly driving their money from fee for service, then you may want to align with that. Because if you bring in an economic model that they're not fully baked into, or they don't see as being their dominant economic model, then you're going to have a lot more difficult time selling to them because you're going to have to create a value creation mechanism that's going to justify the type of things that you would want to have. The other thing that comes in is um, value-based care has to do with shared risk, right? Fee-for-service is purely transactional. So you know, if you were to create a value-based care platform, technology, tech-enabled services, devices, you know, meds, all these things are going to get wrapped into value-based care, you have to think about what that financial architecture looks like. We're not very mature in that space. Like we do, we as a, as a healthcare system, we do work in heart failure. I have not come across a very good heart failure value-based care model. The single biggest thing that people typically focus on is reduction of heart failure readmissions for Medicare patients because they're so abysmally high and costly. But that's not a really, you know, for us to say that we did fewer errors is not a really good way that we're, you know, by definition also uh, providing value, right? So the, so what I would say is that startups need to think deeply about their customer base, the economics of those customers, and that likely they will be, especially if they're targeting health systems, but also many of the plans, they are underlying fee-for-service economics. Where we're seeing a lot more, I think, acceleration is when you see employers, you know, funded plans where they're taking risk on the population by definition. They have a lot more autonomy in terms of who they can contract with. That typically becomes an entry point, but growing and scaling in there has been demonstrably challenging for many startups. But then what you see happening with, you know, this advent of pay providers, Humana going deeper into the delivery ecosystem, Optum, you know, both, you know, has a payer side at UHC, but, you know, now owning ASCs and owning clinics outright and thousands of doctors there, they own the value chain. So it's going to be a lot easier to sell to them and say, hey, we can deliver the same outcomes or better outcomes at a lower unit economic price or lower utilization, you'll get their attention. So I think that we're, we're, we're at that point now, and we were definitely not at that point maybe four or five years ago. So, so, so there is progress. Great, great, great. And I think, I think one, of the, one of the things that I want to kind of jump to from that is kind of even perhaps further back, when patients are first interacting, right, it used to be very straightforward. You knew who you were going to, you know, they went to their primary care physician, right? And they talked to their, you know, let's say 10 plus years ago, talked to their primary care physician who then referred them to a spe- specialist who may have referred them to another specialist who then, you know, they then get some diagnostics performed, then perhaps there are additional diagnostics, a therapy at some point, medication, and kind of, you know, bring the circle back around again. And these days that front end is really shifting and kind of how patients come in and start to interact. And I'm wondering if you could talk, a, you know, expand a little bit on where we, we started um, a bit in the beginning is this idea, idea of, I've heard it called 
consumerization of healthcare or a retailization of healthcare, or this idea that you know, Walmart and CVS and Amazon and others are attempting to get into, are getting into kind of healthcare and primary care in particular. I mean, as a, as a kind of med tech startup, and we're thinking about, you know, services, let's say, how does that shift how we need to be thinking about things? Should we still be focusing on kind of the hospital systems or trying to build out this continuum of care? Should we be focusing on kind of these retail outlets kind of coming into primary care? I mean, how do you, how do you help us think about that and how kind of startups in particular need to be sorting this change? No, I think, I think it's a spectacular question. So I'll kind of take the, the timeline a little further back. So in the, in the nineties, um, a big shift happened in healthcare in the late mid to late nineties. Pharmaceutical companies were able to advertise directly to patients on television. You may remember mm-hmm. this, right? And, and, that changed the way a patient was actually interacting with their doctor before they'd go to their doctor and they'd be like, doctor, I'm feeling like this the doctor would be like, Oh, well, I think this is happening. And I give you some meds. Now patients were using WebMD, listening to these ads, going to their doctor with the preliminary diagnosis and saying, doctor, I have this. And I think I want this med. Right. And that trend has continued on today to where, you, and, and it's not only in healthcare. I mean, we used to go to car lots and we'd be like, Oh, I like that car. Let me buy it. Now we just do all of our research and everything. I mean, Carvana will just deliver a card to you at home, right? And you don't even ever have to interact with the person. So there is a consumerization of the society that's happened over the last couple of decades in ways where the consumer has more information and is proactively going to the subject matter experts in the space and specifically in healthcare and kind of coming in with their preliminary findings and then asking them for, do you concur with my initial diagnosis or conclusion, right? And there are doctors out there that are like, you know, sometimes patients just want a specific medication and I just give it to them because they ask it so many times and they've sort of become adamant about it, you know, all things being considered if it's if it's appropriate. So now the arc of that has changed, right? So a lot of these referral patterns that you're talking about have actually been disaggregating over some time, right? So before you had a primary care doctor and that primary care doctor would then send you to a specialist and that specialist would then say, hey, we need to do this to you, that to you. And then they have a hospital that they work with and that's where the procedure would be done. And for the most part, that's still holding. But what's happening now is that, you know, for example, you mentioned Walgreens and CVS was kind of the, one of the first movers in the pharmacy space with Minute Clinic in this area. But then Walgreens with Village MD and the recent buyout of Summit demonstrates that they're realizing that, oh, we can become effectively the gate to healthcare for most primary care considerations. They've got Village MD, they've got Summit, they are a pharmacy by definition, they control a lot of the drug spend. They also sell a bunch of other things in the pharmacy. So it works. I would imagine their economic model works really nicely if you can actually take care of patients, get their meds there and get anything else there that they need. And then, you know, they're also, I think, exploring Medicare Advantage plans over time. And we're seeing this actually grow into the grocery chain, like Kroger is actually very forward leaning on this, you know, so now you can go to Kroger at some point in the near future and get your primary care visit and your meds and your bananas on the way out, right? And you don't have to go anywhere else. So, so it makes sense from a retail perspective of retail revenue capture. It also makes sense from a perspective of opening more access points into the healthcare system. Now to your question, what does this mean for hospitals, right? What do the referral patterns look like? If Does your local Walgreens connect in with your local health system? And do they have specialty groups? And so that's why they bought Summit out likely. And that's why you'll see probably something happening with some of these other players is, you know, they have to link up with the referral entities to then think about how to manage the, at least the outpatient side of the care continuum. So I'm sure, you know, this is going to continue on as we look at telehealth, it's a modality, right? So people became really accustomed to getting care at home, getting care remotely without having to go into brick and mortar. And, and, and we're in that space of virtual care and remote patient monitoring and polypharmacy for older patients in the home. So, you know, do you want, you know, grandma getting in a car, going to uh, a local, you know, Walgreens or Walmart or, you know, physician practice? Or do you want more and more of that care delivered directly to grandma in her living room, in her bedroom, in a virtual, you know, way? And we're seeing a lot of stuff happening in home health, too, where home health assets are being bought. So I think the locus of care shifting outside and closer to the home 
and also closer to these consumer retail areas where we typically are trafficking anyways. We're going to pick up our meds. We're going to pick up our groceries. Why not just get a prime? The bank's already figured this out. They just built the bank and the Starbucks inside the grocery store. Healthcare is just, I think, following the same trend, frankly. That's a, that's a great point about the banks, figuring that out a long time ago in Starbucks, because yeah, I see those everywhere. Sometimes you'll see a Starbucks inside the when grocery I, store and the next to the grocery store too, right? Like independently. So. Oh, that's funny. I think that it is certainly becoming really interesting to kind of watch, see, and attempt to predict a little bit what's happening here and where it what people are going to need, patients, providers, retailers, right? Um, practitioners or healthcare practitioners, providers, and how we kind of tease all of that out. Do you, do you see any, so for example, it used to be when you have services in particular, like an, e, an EMR, an EHR, uh, those types of things, that you would want to be able to sell them into kind of hospitals or a hospital that was part of a broader group of hospitals, right? As a system or an IDN uh, so that you can kind of pilot it at one and then kind of maybe spread it across the other ones. What do you think is the right approach to this kind of shifting transitional kind of, you know, retailization of, of healthcare? In service, you know, in the services crossing some the services that are needed a lot of times that are innovative to hospitals and hospital systems. They think about things very differently than like a Walmart or a CVS or a you know Walgreens and those sort of folks do. Yeah, I mean, I think what we can pretty much surmise, at least this is what our experience is, and we've done a lot of work in EMR redesign, you know, so somebody gets an EMR, it's never the way they expect it to be out of the package, and they got to spend years and a lot of money and continue, it's like becomes the, the thing that's always being worked on, but is never, the work is never complete, right? And that's sort of the nature of, you know, anybody that has any of the EMR platforms, especially the larger ones, they, this is like what they'll say, right? They have armies of people that are constantly updating and managing it. And, and it's core to business. So th that should be expected. It's the same in the corporate world with databases and CRMs and so on and so forth. So, but right. fundamentally, there's a couple of things that are happening. One is the experience is going to get more fragmented, right? So we're when we think about who the ultimate consumer is in healthcare, the ultimate consumer is the patient. So we actually have a real big problem in healthcare where patient satisfaction is really low. Patients are typically indexed with disproportionate amount of responsibility for managing their own care and managing data information and regurgitating the same stuff that people should know over and over again every time you fill out a form and so on and so forth. Once again, not very complicated technologically to do any of this stuff. I just don't know like why, you know, I, I know why there's uh, structural impediments to it. But, you know, when you in other industries and in other experiences, we would never accept that. We would never accept that from Amazon. We would never accept that from Netflix. You know, we would we just don't, but somehow mm -hmm. we do in healthcare. So I think we there there are layers that need to be created that go above and beyond the EMR that integrate with it to deliver care right effectively. Take data from the mm -hmm. EMR, take knowledge, you layer on top of it, and it, and it's fine. It's great to create value care layers on top of it. It's one of the things that we're doing. We're saying, hey, medications are highly specialized products with very specific physiological and symptomological reactions. We should be very you know, determined in how we actually dose and titrate and adjust medications. And we should look at the physiological you know, feedback from patients and how they're feeling and figure out whether we should back off something or maybe prescribe something different or change the dosage. And none of that's actually able to happen inside an EMR today, but it can happen in conjunction with an EMR. We take data from EMRs, we populate back our recommendations. So I think that there's a whole crop of new companies that are being created and will be created in that space. When I look at what's happening with some of these entities, you know, Walmart is buying Epic, right? So they're going down the, hey, we're not going to build our EMR. We're just going to buy it. Village MD, from what I understand, and I could be wrong on this, I think they built something in-house over time, and that actually becomes part of the Walgreens play as well. So the question really becomes is what assets are being used and created and what layers can be created on it. But ultimately, when you look at disaggregation, the question foundationally, I think what you're asking is, how does the care get integrated now 
once you've gone to Walgreens, how are they thinking about you as a patient? Are you still a patient or were you just a retail customer when you walked in the store? Those are two very different things. Now, hospitals and health systems tend to think of you as somebody that they have for life effectively, right? Like you go there, they have your data and you are going to come back there in some way, shape or form if you need it. Now, how does Walgreens, how does Walmart think about that? Do they have partners in that space? Do they have health system partners? I think at some point they're going to have to link up if they already haven't announced these things. And that goes for, and I don't think any provider can exist independent of the ecosystem in the long run, right? And then when you think about the value-based care paradigm, then effectively you have to sing together, right? In order to, you know, make money and improve outcomes and manage the continuum. And uh, you mentioned ACOs at the beginning of this call and ACOs have had, a, a, a Medicare ACOs have struggled with that, right? Because the responsibility has been indexed in the primary care group, but the spend has been you know, going into the hospital specialty groups, and they have no control over that. I think some of the new stuff that they've introduced has actually helped to address that problem. But for the better part of like the last eight or nine years, Medicare ACOs have generally not been uh, performing as well as they were expected to perform, especially on a on a shared savings basis. And a lot of that is because who's managing what and who's responsible for what. And I think I think that game will continue on for a little while until we've kind of figure out figure this out. I think that's, yeah, a lot of really brilliant insights in what you said. And I think a lot of it kind of hovers around the idea that in the United States, we're, we're still valuing or the, the money flows towards procedures and therapy and not towards health, as in prevention, doing the right thing, getting out in front of it, predictive right? Predictive measures that tell us, hey, if they're going down this path, then they're probably going to run into type 2 diabetes. Let's get them off that path and head them down you know, some other, some other street, so to speak. So uh, yeah, a lot, of a lot of paradigm shifting going on in that space. And it makes it makes a lot of fun for startups, right? Like yourself to kind of plug in and figure out where to fit, where the best fit is and how and where it is today and on kind of an ongoing basis. And going forward basis, right? Yeah, I think it's, it, it isn't. And, and I think we have to be cognizant, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot, um, because this is what we see in various different studies and, and data is there's multiple components to somebody's overall health outcomes, right? The delivery of healthcare is only around 20 to 25% of it. There's genetic component, there's socioeconomic, you know, if you're, if you're meeting a patient for the first time in their 20s, there's a whole host of things that they've already experienced in terms of nutrition and, you know, um, family structure and, uh, you know, crime and other risks and so on and so forth, education that will put them on a specific trajectory. We just know that this is the, so, and then there's genetic factors that play in. So I think one of the things that we have to think about is what is doable and how do you, how to do that more effectively and how to go earlier and earlier into the cycle if we're really thinking about prevention and and we're thinking about mitigation. Um, and I know there's many Medicaid programs that think deeply about this. We did some work some years ago um, when I was in a previous role with New York State Medicaid that launched one of the most ambitious programs in this space as part of their uh, reform uh, program called DISRIP. And they really did think about you know early childhood nutrition and education and so many other things, community-based organizations. And so I saw that at the, you know kind of up close and realize, wow, there's so much infrastructure and connective tissue that we don't even have in certain parts of this country. Uh, and now we're talking a lot about health equity, which is kind of the same, it's an extension of the same type of concept of like, how do you actually deliver and get people the similar or same access to then ultimately improve health outcomes more consistently across different cohorts and populations. So I think we have to think about there's layers of other components that don't exist in the hospital system or don't exist in a clinical office that actually have a, a, a you know a seat at the table here and maybe way earlier in the life cycle of a patient than than in interaction with with a practitioner of healthcare. Yeah, and how do how do we get that line of sight to those things in a way that's appropriate, right? Privacy and all of that ethics. And who who pays um, for it, right? Consider. Like is our 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 you know, is it a state function or is it a hospital function or is it a payer function? We see a lot of work in like you, you know, we did something at Geisinger called Fresh Food Pharmacy, right, which was in Scranton, you know, Wilkes-Barre area. And 
you know, they really were prescribing like, you know, nutritionist, nutritious food and, and then giving it to patients, right, who didn't have that type of access. And we see some payers doing that right now, and so on and so forth. But our, you know, and there's talk about like, oh, affordable housing. So is that a state function? Or is that a payer? Like, who ultimately is paying for these things, there's going to be at some point, some level of delineation, right? I mean, is a insurance company going to start building affordable housing for people in their geography? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's but or is that more of a county and state responsibility in conjunction with the payers that operate in that area? I think that things are going to get uh, pretty interesting in the coming years about how to demarcate some of those um, responsibilities. Yeah, those are great, great questions, like big, thorny questions uh, that have yet to be answered in, in any really kind of like thoughtful, enduring way. Um, and. In listening to you, I think about things like ACEs, like adverse childhood experience, right? And you were saying without saying specifically social determinants of health, right? All those things that we know go into putting, as you said, people on a specific trajectory from a health standpoint. Um, and, and where does that intersection take place? Where does that make sense? Yeah. Social health care. How does that come? How's it? How does that come together? People have some pretty strong feelings about that. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, one of one of the things that my research may be a little outdated on this, but one of the things that Medicaid in certain states covers is dental, right? So people will go for Medicaid for very specific things. There's obviously in the adult Medicaid population, there's a lot of churn because of eligibility and re-enrollment every year. So you know, you may have people that churn in and out. But dental coverage is a very, uh, you know, in some states, not every state, it's covered in Medicaid or partially covered. So if somebody's dental health is poor earlier on in life, uh, they will likely develop chronic conditions earlier uh, than, than the average person in the population. So, you know, they may go in for these dental procedures and they may have deteriorating teeth for various reasons, nutritional reasons, poor hygiene diabetes, whatever other chronic conditions. But then how are we using that knowledge to actually then, you know, understand and take care of that patient earlier because we're seeing signs of it, right? There's parts of dental hygiene that actually drive certain types of cardiac valvular disease too. There's certain bacterial endocarditis. Uh, so I believe is the, is, is the term for that. So these are all very interesting things. They're, they're, they're known. So we're not talking about the unknown at this point. The question is, how do you create a model that actually effectively gets that knowledge and then, you know, inter intervenes and mitigates and addresses it in a meaningful way? I think that that's, that's the million dollar question, right? The care continuum right now is, uh, depending on where you are and, and which populations you're in, is not continuous for the most part. You know, it's, it's highly experiential uh, and it's very different from place to place in organization to organization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And yeah, how do you connect up dental? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I'll just, I'll just toss in that I had an experience where I went, I thought I broke my toe, first broken bone in my body ever, which is good. And I went to urgent care, right? That would make sense. Hackensack Meridian, urgent care. A great health system, mile from my right? Home. Right. Great health system. It's directly across the street from the hospital. Right. And like great children's hospital. Great, you know, great hospital. And I went in and they said, well, we're pretty sure you have this. But we can't uh, say definitively because our x-ray tech is out. I was like, well, can't someone else take the x-ray? No, but they'll be back tomorrow. If you want to come back tomorrow, you know, you should really just go to the ER. And I was like, not, I, can, I can walk. Like, I'm not going across the street to an ER because I think I broke my toe. When are they here tomorrow? Right? And so then I have to go back. And it gets better. I said, I said I'm curious. I said, I had to fill out a paper form when I came in. I said, one of the reasons why I keep coming back to Hackensack Meridian is because I want it all in one place. I want everyone to be able to see everything. And... I said, so why are you still using paper forms? And they said, oh, you know what? We're on the list to get linked up as part of right the, the EMR and the EHR initiative. But we're not there yet. We're number, they cited some 
double digit number on the list. <laughs> so even though they're literally across, like across the street, it's not connected in any way, shape or form. And we still have these kind of misses in, in really simple ways. Um, yeah. And it was a Saturday. It's not as if it were, you know, it, an unbusy so how, day. How did that make you feel? <laughs> I mean, that, that just sounds, uh, <laughs> it, 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 um, I generally love Hackensack Meridian. My mom had some issues with TIA. She has AFib. And when she lived with us for a couple of years and they did a remarkably amazing, they did great with her. I mean, they have a tremendous stroke care center. Um, but my interaction in, in that, in that particular instance was, you know, it was a bit head scratching. Um, because I'm dealing pay, I'm supposed to be with like the premier right hospital system in the state of New Jersey. And I'm, I'm not in some far off rural area, right. Which is typically, you know, where you say, oh, well, perhaps they're not connected yet. Perhaps they're not part of it yet. And we're directly across the street and it's 2022. And <laughs> how do you not have an x-ray tech or have like a backup you can call or how do you, why am I still filling out a paper form? Why don't you at least digitize mm -hmm. that piece of it before, right? So that you have the data to then push into the EMR, EHR when you have it, or why don't you have some default way to do some kind of like download, upload once a month, right? There, there are known ways to make this work. Um, so yeah, how did it make me feel? Not the greatest about that particular facility. So not, I still like Hackensack Meridian a lot, but that particular facility, I had to say, why am I even getting in my car? So, and that, you know, I'd done telehealth before, so then I just did telehealth the next time. Yeah, and you know. I felt like better, better care. I was like, what was the point of me getting Your experience is typical, right? And like, is, 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 uh, and, 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 you know, I, I would venture to say that there are some rural or non-urban health systems like Geisinger, like Intermountain, which is like in the Rockies, right? For the most part right. between Colorado and Utah mm -hmm. or Mayo, which is not in Minneapolis, but, you know, in, in Rochester, Minnesota. And so, and so you, you kind of walk in and, you know, I think our null assumption or hypothesis is, oh, you know, heavily populated area, sophisticated health system, well-branded at least, they would have this all figured out. But like, we are still dealing with first order problems like paper in healthcare. You know, like it, it, the amount of time, if we aggregated how much time patients spend regurgitating the same information over and over again, and then waiting for care, and then finding that that care is not accessible at that time or so on and so forth. Once again, it, it, it's probably bundles up to like a bunch of hours every year. I'm sure it's probably on the order of like cumulatively months or years of collective patient time, right? And we're, you know, but you can't really go further than that. You know, that if you, if, if these first order things are not solved, there's really no, there's no room for, uh, like, for example, we find and the data shows us that 30 to 50% of the medications in an electronic medical, uh, you know, that a patient is on are not in, in an EMR of, you know, for example, the health system that they may go to regularly. Why? Because they may go to another doctor for some other meds, or they may have gone out of state and that doctor prescribed them something and they're taking that medication, but they never told their, you know, the doctor they go to regularly, like their primary care doctor or one of their specialists. So there's so much, even once you get to the digital side of it, it's so incomplete, right? Experientially, informationally. And then the other thing that you hit on is like, probably we, you, you experience a little bit of like the massive labor pr supply problem we're having in healthcare, right? I mean, it's happening across clinicians. It may have been like a, like, I would imagine they would want an x-ray tech there on a Saturday, right? It's probably a higher throughput day, but they may not be able to find one and because of supply issues, right? Mm -hmm. And and you were seeing this definitely with physicians and nurses and you know, people talk about burnout and burnout and burnout. And I'm just like, yeah, burnout is a manifestation of operational and structural problems in the system. And it's one of the biggest reasons that when these uh, health systems over the last year who have, you know, uh, resoundingly, I think, as an industry been putting up pretty bad, like negative profitability numbers. And, they, you know, one of the single biggest um, things for them is attrition and high labor costs, especially on the clinical side. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we've got a system where the practitioners in that system 
are they're not enough of them and the ones that are there are feeling like there's a you know undue burden on them and that's not really great when mm-hmm. we think about an aging population a growing population with growing and growing chronic disease needs more consumerization so we have a supply demand inversion that's actually happening where there's going to be way more demand than supply to deliver it so we really need to think deeply about how we can scale the people we have today more effectively to take care of larger population sizes more effectively you know and and that's one of the things that we think a lot about is how do we actually have pharmacists and nurses on our team give them superpowers to take care of way larger patient attributions than the ones what, that we have today or the ones that are industry standard because you know 5 10 years from now i think we're not going to be creating enough doctors and nurses and pharmacists and you know x-ray techs and so on to meet the demand that's coming down the pike i mean i think the demand is definitely going up for healthcare needs uh, the spend is definitely going up astronomically so yeah you're uh, unf- uh, sorry to hear that your experience was like that but that's not that's pretty typical you know unfortunately and uh yeah that's uh what, what can we say we're we're still using facts right to a certain degree in healthcare so Even even 20 years ago, I had reps say, I said, our goal for this entire year for the marketing department is to gather physician names and email addresses. So we want to be able to have ongoing communications with them. And I can't tell you how many of them will say, oh, they don't have an email. And I, I was like, look, I know it's 2005, but they have an email. I know they have an email. They just don't maybe want to give it to us. Fine. Can we have their admin's email? Can we have somebody who's in their, you know, somebody has an email for us to communicate with them. Um, but they're like, well, they have a fax number that I'm like, no, we're not, I'm not building a database of fax numbers. <laughs> it's not, I understand that still happens. That is not how we're going to be doing business. So now, nowadays, of course, it's a, you know, foregone conclusion that people provide their email address when they want to be in contact with certain individuals or certain companies. But it wasn't at that point in time. Um, so it was a bit hard one. So I, I love this idea that you talked about, about giving pharmacists and nurses kind of superpowers, right? And about the, the supply, the labor, labor supply, right? Because we already see that in a lot of physician specialties where they're not filling all the slots, right? Residency slots or fellowship slots, um, depending on the specialty. And so I think that idea of using, yeah, folks who like pharmacists and nurses, for example, um, not to push them to do more, but to make it easier for them to, as you said, have, give them superpowers. Yeah. We we think about it in two ways, right? One is um, something that's kind of ingrained in us uh, in our DNA, I think as both my co-founder and I, Yvonne, who also worked with me in, at Geisinger, and then and then what we're building here at Lumi is this idea of top of license care, right? So what we have today is um, a lot of folks that are working below where their license allows them to work. Like an example would be a physician actually trying to schedule an appointment for a patient. Like that doesn't, that you, and, uh, somebody administrative could do that, right? You wouldn't need a doctor to do that sort of thing. So that that's, they're working below their license, right? In the clinical right. segmentation, there's a lot of stuff that doctors are doing that nurses could do. There's a lot of things that nurses are doing that a, a, a medical assistant could do. There, so where we come in is that, first of all, we need to figure out how to segment this type of work appropriately and then delegate it, right? When you're talking about one person doing five things, it's a lot easier because there's one person managing all five. We're talking about four people doing five things then it becomes a little trickier. Who's doing what? How does the sequencing work? How's the handoffs? So that's what, what's called care coordination effectively, right? Is the idea of coordinating and collaborating. And this is one of the biggest things that came out from, from this move after the Affordable Care Act is the orchestration of care that allows this type of segmentation and delegation. So that's been very interesting. But one of the things that we found is that for medication therapy, we were still indexing very heavily on physicians, but physicians didn't have informational resources, you know, like what's happening to the patient at the home or what are all the meds they're on or what's happening to their other organ systems. Like somebody with heart failure 
also has high blood pressure, diabetes, likely chronic kidney disease, likely CO, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So, you know, cardiologists don't have the time bandwidth resources or any other specialist to convene with a nephrologist and, and a pulmonologist and a primary care doc in some virtual meeting and talk about one patient's complex medication therapy. That just never happens, right? It would be amazing if we could do that, but we just, it's not, it's not realistic. So what we thought is, okay, who, who does know really a lot about medications and knows about guidelines and how to dose and titrate and what the re- latest research is? Oh, well, we have these people called pharmacists who are, by definition, experts in medications. They do this all day long, right? And so there's a type of pharmacist called a clinical ambulatory pharmacist that actually works. As, so this is not the person dispensing your pills at your local pharmacy. They're actually somebody that thinks mm-hmm. about, is sits in a care model and actually does clinical delivery of care. So they can look at the therapy, they can look at the medications, they look and look at where there may be improvements or compliance with guideline uh, protocols that you mentioned earlier, but they can also look across the cross comorbidity. So how does, if we change this one med, what might it do to this other med or the symptom that this patient is expressing? How does that factor in to really following this part of, you know, the titration schedule or something like that? So what we're doing is we're actually move, you know, we work in conjunction with physicians. The pharmacist becomes a part of the physician team effectively and helps to then collaborate on where the medication improvement opportunities might be with patients. And it allows the physician to then react way faster, right? Because now they've had all this, they're not chasing the patient down and calling them in off hours and, oh, the patient called, there's like phone tag going on, then there's pieces of information missing in the EMR. The pharmacist has done all that work and actually come to the table with some recommendations or opinions driven both by the technology and the devices that we have, but also by the pharmacist's own knowledge. And then they can work with the cardiologist or any physician and then accelerate the decisioning. And that's what we're really trying to do on a first order basis. On a second order basis is how do we actually take this knowledge that we have and these recommendations and then build better recommendation models on top of that, right? The, the analogy would be, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, we were using, we digitized an analog experience. We took AAA maps and Rand McNally and we made it MapQuest, right? And MapQuest, all it does is you just put a starting and ending place and you print it out and you really have an analog experience again, right? You got these papers that you're running around with and you're looking at on your passenger seat. And, and then Waze came, right? Google Maps, Waze. And, and, and now there's no paper and, and we have a reliance on them, not because we may not know the geography of where we live, but there are pieces of information in there that we just don't have knowledge of, traffic, roadblocks, new roads, you know, avoidance of tolls, so many things, right? So it becomes a companion. So what we're actually building is that companion model, because guess what? We can all avoid traffic and we can all avoid the roadblocks. It alleviates congestion on the road dynamically, right? And it makes for a better driving experience for everyone. So that's what we're really trying to build. And we think that both, art, you know, types of artificial intelligence, like machine learning and operational and clinical efficacy will help us allow to scale more better over time and then require less human input and more uh, more guidance. And then the humans can really, when you think about it, if you know, you don't have to listen to the radio and flip to the radio stations to hear traffic anymore. The, the app's telling you if there's traffic, it's already rerouting you, right? And you can focus more on the driving and, you know, just having a better experience and avoiding other things, you know, along the way that might be harmful. So that's really how we think about scale and efficiency in, in you know, and, and driving is the best analogy that I can give because I think it's relatable to so many folks. Yeah, the driving analogy is a great one. So when you talk about roadblocks and stoppages and unexpected things, right, because those could be cautions or warnings or this deviates from or, right, there, there, are, different, there are different ways to think about that, but. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and being able to digitize it and also kind of put the right person on the job. You know, so I've, I don't know what the most recent stat was, but I know it was like 50% of 50% of people with, this was hypertension, not heart failure, but it was like 50% of people with high blood pressure, hypertension, um, who are diagnosed and managed medically, meaning taking some kind of drugs or pills, missed their systolic blood pressure target. <laughs> How can that even be the case? So I think where where you're going and, and where Lumia is headed is so critically important, obviously not just for kind of where you start, but kind of broadly in so many different kind of arenas um, to try to reduce the not acuity, what's the right word? 
you know, to put the right person on the job so that they're operating, as you said, kind of at the top of their license or top of their responsibility um, and allow other people then by doing that to do that with theirs. And that should ideally over time also help with things like besides patient outcomes, you know, burnout, less burnout, et cetera, right? They're doing the things that are enjoyable that allow them to kind of stretch and, and not doing these kind of routine things that that other people can handle. Absolutely. And here, here's another thing, right? Physicians and clinicians today, when you go in, you get a surgery done, it's an episode, right? You go in, you get a surgery done, you're there for a certain amount of time, they discharge you. And that's the hospitals. The hospital acute facilities are built a certain way. And we actually have really, really great acute facilities in this country, right? You know, it's not, any type of surgery you want to get, we're typically at the tops for that, right? What happens... But the care continuum is really short there, right? And the episode is really short. When you've left the hospital, you've now entered life, right? So what's the episode on life? The episode on life is like, in you know, it's pretty pretty big, right? So so now you're talking about um, when a pay, when a physician, a primary care doctor, is optimizing um, antihypertensive medications. There's a lot of trial and error that happens in that, you know, you know, which how many pills, diuretic sequencing morning after and morning evening, you know, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of adjustment that happens. So a lot of it is like, Oh, here are these pills and here's a blood pressure monitor. Tell me, you know, just document your blood pressure. And then like maybe after three months or six months, we'll see you and then call us if things get bad. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty bad paradigm, right? Like that's just, if we're trying to titrate something that, you know, you have upper and lower bounds to manage in almost like a speed limit, right? then it would be really good to be monitoring that all the time to see if you're drifting towards a higher speed or going below the minimum speed, right? But no, we, we don't have mm-hmm. that, right? So that's one of the things that we're trying to do at Lumi is say, on the blood pressure side is, what if you had a model where there was actual continuous management, right? And there's a number of other remote patient monitoring companies that are doing this. But the thing that I think we're, we're mm-hmm. trying to bring is like, how do you take that information around blood pressure specifically? Uh, because almost every heart failure patient also has comorbid high blood pressure. And then build that into a decisioning mm-hmm. model to see if there's drift going on, right? Or if there's a mm. sudden change in blood pressure because maybe they had a high salt intake or maybe it was a drug adverse drug reaction. So the doctors having that knowledge gives them a whole new level of visibility. They may not react to it, but actually having that information and knowing that somebody's monitoring their patients gives them a ton of peace of mind. Sometimes burnout happens just from not knowing uncertainty factor, right? What's happening with that patient? What's happening with this patient? What's that? You know, a typical primary care doctor may have 1500 patients, right? Sometimes 2000 patients. They're thinking about all of them all the time. And so if you can create a level of understanding of the population, what's happening, and they can feel comfortable that those patients are being monitored and watched and, uh, and somebody's working with them or some technology is looking at what's going on and and they have access to that information, but they don't have to always react to it. That's a win-win for everybody. And I think that that's really, when we think about what's happening with hospital at home and some of the really interesting virtual care models that exist out there, I think this is like the future of healthcare, which is that it's going to create greater awareness, but not necessarily automatic reactivity. Right now we have a super reactive healthcare system. Somebody says, you know, a problem identified is typically later than it should have been identified. And then we're looking to mitigate and address it and hammer it back into place. And then then the next one pops up. It's almost like a game of whack-a-mole the way we are today. I laugh because I I use the whack-a-mole analogy for certain things. (laughs) So I, I, I track with that analogy 100%. So I think... We have, we've covered a, a lot today, kind of uh, retailization, value-based care, ACOs, care continuum, uh, a whole host of things that make this, this entire like ecosystem uh, so much more, in my mind, kind of challenging and really interesting, right? At the same time, when you think about being a startup on the outside and how how can you help? How can you influence? How, you know, where, where should you punch in? Uh, kind of in why and with whom. And so it's a fascinating time of change and transition was a word you used um, as well. So a lot going on with that. And we could certainly talk about this for, 
for a whole lot longer <laughs> than we kind of have today. Um, so I just have a couple final, couple kind of final questions. Um, I saw on your profile, on your profiles that uh, you love, I don't know how you state, I don't remember how you stated it exactly, but something effective. You love hamburgers or your hamburger connoisseur. So if we're going to, you know, when I go to like DC, Northern Virginia, I think of five guys, just they're everywhere, but they kind of came mm-hmm. from there. Where should we be going instead? You know what? It's uh, we- I, I go to Five Guys. Uh, that's that's the place. Uh, you know, maybe not for everyone, but I found that yeah, it's just a, it's a it's a great experience. They they've got a great product. Um, they they do it right. They figured it out. So yeah, that's my that's my go to. There's there's another one here locally uh, called Big Buns. Uh, I love the name, <laughs> and and they and they do a really good burger too. Um, but yeah, those those would be the places uh, to to try out locally. Awesome. 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 That's funny. I mentioned five guys thinking that you would never say that. So, <laughs> so I think of like Dulles, five guys. Yeah. You, but you, you, you know the story, right? So that they started off as like a local place here and then they grew and now they're international and it's amazing. It's an, I mean, like they, they really consistently kept their, the product the same for the most part, you know, the, Prices mm-hmm. obviously change, and we can just attribute that to inflation. But, but, uh, but you can go anywhere, and the Five Guys experience will be pretty consistent. Um, but it's not mechanized, so there is some very like they 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 threaded the needle nicely, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping some of the things like slicing their own yeah. potatoes, no freezers, right? Right? <laughs> right? That make the product, I think, a much better product to consume. So. In my personal opinion, <laughs> and my son, for that matter. So, from that standpoint, um, and if you uh, you mentioned, I also saw that you love to travel. So, if you could give us one place that we should go to that's not kind of on the, you know, let's say it's off the beaten track, not kind of on the typical tourist path of travel. Where might that be and why should we check it out? So so my family's originally from Pakistan, which is, uh, you know, in South Asia. And I think that, you know, a lot of the news that we hear about Pakistan is generally not spectacular in, in, in the United States. Usually something bad has happened or something bad is going to happen or something like that. But it's an amazing country. And I think that if somebody were to be a little adventurous and try it, uh, they would be surprised. I think one of the things that I learn as I travel is that we're all very similar regardless. I've been in countries where I don't know the language and I'm like out off the beaten path and people are just humans. Humans are just humans, you know? And and we all, I think, generally aspire to many of the similar things that, you know, security, uh, food, shelter, camaraderie, you know, avoidance of conflict. Like those are just, I think, some pretty normal values. And so... I think one of the things that I would say about Pakistan is that I have not even traveled extensively around the country, but it has a lot to offer. I've traveled there many, many times, and you'd be surprised at you know how how diverse the country is. There's multiple countries in one country. You've got everything from like beaches and deserts to the highest mountains on earth. You know, you've got uh, actually descendants from Alexander the Great still living in some of the northern areas from when he came through that region, you know, over 2000 years ago. So there's, there's a lot, uh, I would, I would highly recommend it. Another country that I'd recommend, um, if folks are not that adventurous yet is Vietnam. That was the last country we visited right before we typically go on, on a vacation, you know, once a year near the end of the year and Vietnam, we did right before the beginning of the pandemic in November, 2019. And it was, amazing like very very once again it just reminded me there's things that i i have to learn there are impressions that i have that i you know that are we're, we shouldn't always be as confident in our knowledge of things as we are so it, it and it was amazing it was a, a a truly truly a great experience so those would be i know you asked for one but i, I gave you two <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'll take two. I'll take two. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, Pakistan and uh, Vietnam. Sound like great opportunities. And I, I love that you talked about, um, you didn't use the word kind of humbling, but, you know, we shouldn't be as, think we know so much. 
So I'll flip it over and call I, it. I think it's I absolutely the right term. It really makes you realize, you know, that there's always something new to learn and a new perspective and a new experience to have. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, on that, we'll, we'll end this for now. And I uh, just want to say thank you so much for coming and spending the time today with us and kind of talking through all these different different topics and so much change and transition and such great opportunity within all Absolutely. of it. Um, Absolutely. No, it was spectacular. Yeah. Do you mind if I leave just leave with one thought since there might be some aspiring startup people Please. out there or people... That are sure. that are thinking about uh, an experience. You shared your experience, you know, your experience with healthcare. Just a little bit about our uh, origin story. So my dad has got multiple chronic conditions: heart failure, and diabetes, and high blood pressure. And he's a very well educated, highly sophisticated person who's done like some really amazing things. But his challenge was around, you know, his doctors were having trouble managing his complex medication regimen for a lot of the reasons that I've already shared. You know, the complexity, the lack of coordination. And that's really one of the founding reasons like why we experienced so much stress and uncertainty. And he expressed, he experienced a lot of like poor outcomes and so on and so forth. And that what, that's one of the driving reasons of why we launched Lumi Health and why I was so passionate about this problem. So, the, so the, 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 the thing that I would leave everybody with is if you've experienced something in healthcare or somebody that you know or a loved one, uh, you could probably summarize that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, or potentially millions of other people that are experiencing that same problem. And if you want to, you know, build something in that space, after doing some research, you'll probably find that there's actually something buildable there. I mean, you just talked about, you know, the lack of certain types of people to do x-rays and paper and digitizing that experience. There's so many parts where we need smart people to build things and people that actually have experience and knowledge you don't have to have the domain expertise i mean having just gone through something like that can can be really insightful so i would definitely encourage folks if you've had those type of experiences and i'm pretty sure many of your listeners can probably point to at least one or two things then that might be a starting place to think about where where improvements can be done that that is a that's a great i love your origin story that it's personal and genuine and Right. There are a lot of problems to solve. So I love the idea about asking people to find them and letting them know that there are opportunities for them to start their own. Absolutely. Found their own company to solve those problems. Without a doubt. (laughs) So thanks again so much for your time today. And uh, that's it for the Message Engineer podcast. Please like, subscribe, all that good stuff if you enjoyed what you heard today. Thanks for joining us.